Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Michael Warren is here to talk about another wild week at the White House as President Trump expresses dissatisfaction with his attorney general and, in the face of widening investigations, starts exploring his presidential powers to pardon. John McCormick will be coming by to explain what happened to the Senate effort to repeal and replace Obamacare and tell us where, if anywhere, it goes next. And then Stephen Hayward is going to tell us about the mudslides that have knocked out California's great coastal road, Highway 1, near Big Sur. All that coming up on the Confab. But first, let me mention our sponsor, Away Travel. Your luggage shouldn't cost more than your plane ticket. Away Travel's luggage is designed to be high quality and still under $300. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com standard and use the promo code STANDARD during checkout. Joining us on the CONFAB, Mr. Mike Warren, senior writer and White House correspondent for the Weekly Standard. Mike, how you doing? I'm great. It's uh, another week, Eric, and uh, you know nothing really to write or, or uh, cover for, this, for, for me. This was one of those weeks from the White House where, again... It seemed on a policy issue, Donald Trump was getting his footing as at, right after the GOP Hill effort, Senate effort to um, repeal and replace Obamacare fell apart. It looked like everything was going to be just in complete pieces. Donald Trump calls senators to the White House, and there did seem to be a sense, wait a second, maybe we can get something done. Maybe if, we, if somebody is you know, coaching us and organizing us, um, that that it isn't a lost cause at this point. And then, kind of out of nowhere, Donald Trump gives an interview to the New York Times. The failing New York Times. The failing New York Times. Like, why, why the president, after bashing <laughs> the New York Times left and right, still sees them as the go-to news organization, it would seem, when he has something, say, something to say. Right. And, um, and he goes and he starts talking about how, you know, basically... He thinks Jeff Sessions never should have been the attorney general in the first place and uh, kind of bigfooted his his own success with the Obamacare effort. Yeah, this um, there's a lot to unpack and, and sort of all, all this happened in like 48 hours, too, which is insane. Um, I mean, I, I think that the perception was that perhaps that there was a chance, I think, in reality, we'll find out. Uh, on Obamacare repeal, that it's 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 no matter. I mean, Trump got into this too late, you know, too little, too late, uh, and I think that's going to bear out. Um, but for the moment, at least from a public relations there perspective, a there's a there sense. sense. I agree. Wait a second, maybe this thing isn't dead. Maybe maybe there is something that can get done. Right. I I, I think ultimately it won't get done. But yes, there was a sense of sort of a renewed sense of purpose. I think from the White House that. Hey, we we did promise we want to, we want to get this done. We we promised it. You Republican senators promised it. So let's get going. Um, and then you're right. Then out of seemingly nowhere, the president decided uh, to grant an interview to the New York Times. Um, and yes, he calls it the failing New York Times. He complains about media bias, but 
The New York Times is one of the first papers he reads in the morning after the New York Post. Um, one of the reporters who was in the, uh, the, the uh, there were three New York Times reporters, it's Maggie Haberman, uh, who he has known since she was at the New York Post in the 90s and uh, covering people like Donald Trump. Really, Donald Trump and the New York Post were sort of made for each other. Now she's in the New York Times covering him, and they have a uh, a sort of interesting relationship as a, sor- a, a sort of subject and reporter. Um, so, yes, it's the failing New York Times, but it's also it's a paper and, and, and reporters in particular that um, he feels comfortable talking with and um, and talk. He did. <laughs> I mean, there was there was so much out of this interview. It really was kind of freewheeling Donald Trump uh, speaking about many which different is things. not to be confused with the freewheeling bob dylan <laughs> that's right that's uh uh yeah different album altogether it, it, exactly uh blonde on blonde donald trump's blonde i don't want to go down that road um but the, the to me the meat of this it was so sort of wide-ranging interview they talked about france they talked about uh health they talked about all sorts of things to me what struck me and what i think is is the case is that this was an interview that uh, that Trump wanted to get out uh, a couple things about. He wanted to get out that he was, as you said, unhappy with Jeff Sessions, and in fact, didn't uh, sort of regrets retroactively regrets the uh, wishes he could retroactively uh, not have nominated him for Attorney General because of the decision in March that uh, Sessions made to recuse himself from all Russia invest federal Russia investigations. That to the president, we've known this now. We basically have it on record from him. Um, that is what he believes is the start of all of his problems. That Jeff Sessions was his guy, and all of a sudden, his guy is saying, "I'm not going to worry about this." And from that, you have, again, in the president's mind, an FBI director run amok, a uh, decision by some. Deputy Attorney General from Baltimore, of all places, uh, making the decision to name a special counsel. And now the special counsel is doing what? He's, he's probing into all sorts of things. He's going after Don Jr. for this meeting, this totally innocuous meeting, according to the president. Uh, and as he warned in the interview, uh, and if he goes uh, after, you know, looks into my finances, that is Bob Mueller, goes into my finances and my family's uh, uh, business dealings, that will be crossing a line. And lo and behold, the next day after this interview, we find that exactly is what uh, Mueller's investigation is doing. There were reports from White House sources, and you can tell me whether these were credible sources or not sure. in, in these news reports, that people, some people in the White House were shocked that Jeff Sessions didn't get the hint and <laughs> quit the next day. Yeah, I, th- I think that was that's the, that's the best way to read what Trump told the Times and what, what the Times published, which is that this was a, uh, a gambit, an effort to sort of shame Jeff Sessions into resigning. Um, and he didn't. And so now we're in this weird p- place of flux where you've got an attorney general who has, despite what his uh, what what the president spokesman spokeswoman is, is, has been saying, uh, basically does not have the support and the trust of the president of the United States. The president so far is unwilling to, uh, uh, you know, fire him, give him the boot. And the attorney general is unwilling to say, look, the president doesn't have my support. I'm out of here. Uh, so so what happens? Well, what does the president think happens if Jeff, Jeff Sessions resigns? 
does he think that things go back where he nominates a new attorney general who doesn't have to recuse himself in any way, and thus having someone who doesn't have to recuse himself, he no longer has to appoint a special counsel, so that can just be wrapped up. Is that is that the theory going on? I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know if the president is even thinking that far ahead. Um, I, I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that uh, revenge is kind of a strong term, um, but it, it's sort of retribution, right? This is counterpunching. Exactly. The, the this is not famous um, Trump counterpunch. Exactly. And, and that ultimately this is kind of a, uh, a PR fight, right? That this is a fight about sort of winning the narrative and um, that uh, I, I don't know if he's thought how this goes away. I mean, because the, then the next question is, look, if Mueller is really the problem here, Mueller's, the invest, uh, Mueller's investigation is the problem for President Trump, um, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, uh, is, is essentially, na- well, named Mueller and named the special counsel, created the special counsel investigations office for this. Uh, it would be up to him, it would be up to Rosenstein to fire Mueller. Uh, is Rosenstein about to do that? Uh, I don't get any sense that he is. Um, so if Rosenstein is not going to fire Mueller, then Trump would need to fire Rosenstein in order to sort of get to Mueller. I mean, there's a, a couple steps here, and and once you're talking about that, now the president said he he he's not he's not talking about firing Mueller uh, because he doesn't think any of the deep investigations into his business dealings are going to happen. Well, they are happening. So what does he do? I think at that point you really get into this realm, and it. it not to be sort of cliched about it, you get into this realm of what happened with Nixon and Watergate, where you have kind of a constitutional crisis. Is the would the president uh, sort of clearing out the people who are investigating him and his family and his family's business dealings? Um, is it is it proper? Is it right? Is it uh, is it sort of uh, legal in kind of the weird way that the president operates um, and, and sort of his position uh, for him to do that and? And then it becomes, I think, a question of what does Congress do if we get to that point? We're right, not at which that is, point. Which is perhaps the other way that the Trump people may be looking at it, which is that uh, this is like the Clinton-Monica Lewinsky case where the White House declares war on a special counsel and relies on having enough political support that the investigation from the, politi- from the special counsel ultimately nothing comes of it, if you will. Right. I think they, they if they're not consciously thinking of it, they, they ought to be thinking of that as a model uh, because that's what they're doing. Um, the Washington Post, the New York Times, both have uh, reports out that says that's exactly what they're doing. They've got it sort of, sort of shaking up the Trump legal team and making a conscious effort to point out uh, conflicts of interest, uh, to point out that this is sort of a witch hunt, that, that Mueller, in many ways, uh, is conf- is conflicted and uh, maybe we'll even insinuate he's corrupt. Uh, and, and well, I mean, this is somebody affiliated with the White House floating this notion that um, that Mueller has a tiff with Trump over <laughs> membership fees at a Trump golf course from like 15 years ago. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, that but that's the kind of stuff that's going to drip, drip, drip out. Um, this is the very similar thing happened to Ken Starr. Um, and uh, the effort was to discredit him in his investigation. Um, I think this is um, 
this is looking at again looking at this and this has always been the problem for for Trump with regard to this whole Russian collusion story is is the viewpoint that this is a um, a public relations battle and a political battle um, that if you can only rally your forces to think that everybody's out to get President Trump um, then uh, then you can win and maybe you do win you'll get you know you'll get friendly Trump voices in the media to call it that you'll um, sort of have, uh, uh, you, you know, you, you'll maybe have a solid chunk of Republicans saying this is all, you know, a bunch of people going after him uh, until you have um, until you have, you know, legal actions being taken until you have people um, in the FBI, in the Justice Department going through and finding, you know, finding uh, things that could be legally actionable. I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh but the investigation is ongoing. And if you go back to what Rod Rosenstein's letter that established this whole investigation through the special counsel's office back in May, um, it says very clearly, you know, any, any the investigation can look into uh, anything that has to do with Trump or his campaign associates um, uh, uh, regarding, you know, potential uh, uh, problems uh, or or violations or whatever any any sort of uh, relationship with Russia uh, collusion or attempts to uh, sway the election or anything like that and uh, can make uh, uh, you know uh, make criminal uh, indictments and charges uh, based on what they learn from this investigation and at that point it's not about politics anymore um, although it's pretty clear that the special counsel could not bring criminal charges and indictment against the president himself. No. And and again, this is where this is where it does become political. And it's this weird position where the president uh, operates at that point. then, right. It goes to the House of Representatives uh, yeah. to consider impeachment. Um, but what what does happen if this were, let's say, an aggressive prosecutor looking at the um, uh, meeting that Don Jr. had and let's say something were to come of that, whether it was correct or incorrect, prosecutors have tremendous leeway about what they can bring a prosecution about. What does the situation look like in Washington if Donald Trump Jr. is being prosecuted and let's say he is promptly pardoned by his father? Right. Um, I mean, this is something that they're apparently considering. The president's asking about pardons, how that works. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is they're, they're sort of playing with fire, I think, with, with if they're really talking about pardons. On the one hand, there's this sort of idea that pardons will help it go away. Um, right. And people will sort of it, it takes the it takes the uh, the heat off. And, and that's that. On the other hand, if there's more to come, if there's more information, those um, those who are pardoned can certainly be uh, uh, asked to testify. And um there's no rule about that uh, if for if for any related things. Look, I I don't know what's what's to come of this, but the fact that we're at this point, right, that we're talking about uh, uh, the potential, and that apparently the White House is talking about how do we pardon folks, how do we sort of play this at this next level, um, it tells you how how in trouble <laughs> the president is, and how in trouble his administration is, and how I think ultimately straightjacketed. The administration is going to be, um, you know, it's a, a problem. A special counsel, special prosecutor, various whatever terminology of, right. of that. The most dangerous beast in all of Washington, and you get the sense that 
the president has a twig and he's poking the beast. Right. Um, it can't. It can't go well. No. And and let me just say this, Eric, because um, I I think it's important to push back against what the White House's spin on this is, and what I think a lot of White House surrogates and what supporters of the president will be saying over the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, which is, you know, blame, which is what the president's done, right? Blame Jeff Sessions for recusing himself. Blame Jim Comey. Blame Rod Rosenstein for appointing Bob Mueller. Um, and saying that if not for these people and not for their actions and their conflicts or whatever, um, we wouldn't be in this situation. Well, it, let's remember, uh, none of those people uh, told Don Jr. to meet with a Kremlin-linked lawyer when he was promised, uh, uh, you know, uh, damning information from the Russian government. I, th- I thought it was about adoption. Uh, yeah, exactly. By the way, I love that from the New York Times interview, right? That that uh, uh, pre- the, the president when he met said with, with when he met with Vladimir Putin, that, Putin. Exactly. They, they just talked about adoption. Adopt- I mean, adoption. You, you can't make it up. Um, there are actions that the president and associates of the president made, um, and. And they ought to be held accountable for them. We shouldn't jump to conclusions and say that uh, this means this, that, or the other. But, um, you know, ultimately, Trump has nobody to blame but himself and the people he surrounded himself with for all of these problems. And it's important, I think, to keep that all in perspective um, and, and, and not to fall into the trap of saying, well, you know, maybe it was a bad idea for Sessions to recuse himself because of this, that, or the other. Um this is this is this is ultimately the responsible whatever comes of it whether it's uh, you know just uh, whether it's just simply political fallout or there are criminal uh, uh, implications and and and, uh, and and indictments coming down um, these were the the, the president uh, you know deserves uh, the responsibility and the and and um, we shouldn't forget that Michael Warren White House correspondent for the weekly standard thanks for joining us on the confab thank you Eric Mr. John McCormick, senior writer for the Weekly Standard. He's been on the health care beat, the repeal, replace, meh, whatever beat. Is the Senate going to do something or not do something or do something or not do something? It seems to change every day. Yeah, no one knows. I mean, uh, right now the idea is that there, um, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, at least says that he is going to try to get uh, them to try to vote uh, to open up debate on a health care bill. It's not clear exactly what that health care bill is supposed to look like in the final product because you've already had enough senators uh, come out against the two competing ideas being floated around right now, one of which is the, you know, the called the Better Care Reconciliation Act. They're attempt at partially repealing and replacing this law. And the other idea is to sort of set off a two-year delay for repealing the Obamacare subsidies and the spending and the taxes. Uh, but neither of those seem to have the support of uh, at least 50 senators, which is necessary, 50 senators Plus, Mike Pence would actually get this thing to pass the Senate. So is it your sense that that there are senators who are really dug in, or is there sort of like, why should I give if that person doesn't give, and if the, it, to make me happy, somebody else has to give, but then that person says, why should I have to give when so to make so-and-so happy? Well, everybody's different. I mean, uh, Susan Collins and Rand Paul are almost certain no's on any version of this 
repeal and replace bill that's been put forward. Um, Mike Lee of Utah, one of the most conservative members in the Senate, he's actually, you know, he has specific policy disagreements. Uh, that's pretty minor, pretty technical. Uh, but he says if this can be resolved, he will vote for the bill. He thinks the general the bill in general is a joke and he doesn't like it. He's a conservative. But if they put in this uh, Ted Cruz Consumer Freedom Amendment that would allow insurers to sell plans that are not uh, subject to these onerous Obamacare regulations. As Skinny long, plans. As, yeah. As long as they sell one plan that adheres to all these different Obamacare rules, they can sell other plans that don't. And uh, they basically did include that in the bill, but they made one tweak to it, which is pretty complicated and technical, and I don't even quite understand the details myself. I've heard the different arguments about it, but I don't know the answer myself, What whether it's unacceptable or unworkable or not. Uh, but that yeah, is this what- stuff, This mm-hmm. stuff gets so complicated so fast. You mm-hmm. know, one tweak to an amendment, and it changes things significantly enough that somebody falls off on their willingness to support the bill. Who is it who is writing the tweaks and making the changes to the legislative language is it just staff? Is it staff and lobbyists? Is it's it the leadership at the, the the Senate leadership uh, with their staff. You know, the, the staff of the direction of Senate leadership. You know, getting input from various senators and uh, groups and uh, lobbyists. I'm sure are all weighing in on their specific issues and they're negotiating this. Uh, that's what's happening. And so, why they chose to do this version of the Cruz Amendment with one small tweak, it's not quite clear. Uh, advocates say that it's this whole idea of having one insurance pool versus two for these high-risk and low-risk plans, and uh, they included one risk pool, which uh, advocates would say would make the market more stable. Uh, some analysts say that's completely impossible to even do with this. It's going to be it's going to devolve in de facto to two risk pools. I, I don't know what the right answer is really on this question, but that is what that is what the dispute is about. Mike Lee says he vote for it if he, if he gets his way. Uh, Jerry Moran of Kansas, he's a little bit more uh, of a surprise. He's from a Trump state. Uh, he. He's not up for an election until 2022, I believe. And he came out against it saying it doesn't do enough to repeal Obamacare. It doesn't do enough to replace Obamacare. We need an open legislative process. So very critical of the secretive closed process by the leadership. Um, but if you could get Mike Lee back on board, could you get Jerry Moran back on board? Could you get the wavering moderates over the issue of Medicaid? This is all possible. So I wouldn't say that it's it's definitely dead. But Politico, they're vote counting. They're, they're saying that they seem to think that uh, it's probably 10 votes short rather than one or two votes short. That's correct. So there would be another five, uh, you know, in addition to Susan Collins, who is a hard no um, moderate on the issue of Medicaid, there are another four or five moderate Republicans. Uh, Shymore Capito of West Virginia, Rob Portman of Ohio, uh, Dean Heller of Nevada, uh, there are Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, there are others um, who think this bill is too harsh in terms of Medicaid reform. And it's not clear that there's enough money in there to assuage their concerns. This is a bill polling uh, in the team or in the 20s in terms of support with a solid 50 to 60 some percent opposed to it. So are senators hearing from constituents? Are they hearing from Republican constituents as opposed to the very well-organized Democratic constituents who are letting them know how much they dislike the, the very idea of repealing and replacing Obamacare? But is there still any grassroots support for repealing and replacing Obamacare that is making itself known, that's getting organized in any way. Yeah, you know, I think that there really hasn't been much of a concerted effort behind this bill. I don't think the White House has sold it. I don't think Congress has sold it. Uh, just as a reporter, I mean, I've had almost zero 
outreach um, about about the merits of this bill, about the specifics. You know, usually you'd expect, you know, these senators to be the biggest advocates for it. But in fact, when this bill is unveiled uh, by Senate leadership, these senators are trying to figure out for themselves what exactly is in it. And but do he's I heading support for the this? hills. Yeah. So um, it's a, you know, for this thing to pass, you know, it would have needed uh, strong leadership, both in the White House and Congress. You're not getting that right now. And you've also just got the basic problem of a lack of consensus uh, among the Republican Party about what to do. Is the disarray that comes out of the, this effort going to apply to other efforts, or do they learn from the, the sort of catastrophe that this has been and do things in a different way? I mean, the only other major sort of party line issue that they're thinking of tackling is tax reform, which is also very difficult. Um, you know, they might end up figuring that out by sort of avoiding a big, bold tax reform that actually requires some difficult choices and just going for a straight tax cut that increases the deficit. That's obviously dicey because there are some senators who actually care about deficits and they might not go along with that. Um, other than that, you know, I think most bills that are going to pass Congress are going to be uh, these sort of bipartisan spending bills uh, because you can't get you can't get 218 people in the House or 50 Republican senators to agree on spending levels. So you're going to have one of these big uh, sort of monstrosity spending bills that nobody really likes uh, that gets passed the last minute. What happens to Republican constituencies who don't like things like omnibus spending bills, who would like to see some tax reform, who are shaking their head at um, what happened on health care reform? Yeah, well, if you look at the polls, uh, they don't look like they're going to be turning out or the the independents are going to be turning against them. Most polls right now show that Democrats have a clear edge uh, on the 2018 elections. As we know, polls can change. It can change very quickly, as they did in the uh, 2016 presidential election, where Donald Trump looked dead as a doornail in uh, mid-October and ended up you know, closing the gap in the final weeks and winning the election. So polls can be off. They can change. Uh, but right now, they do not look good for congressional Republicans. John McCormick, senior writer at the Weekly Standard, thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you. The Confab is brought to you by Away Travel, a company started to create the perfect luggage. Their approach is simple design luggage to be resilient, resourceful, and fit the way you travel today. Choose from nine colors and four sizes. This is pretty straightforward. There's the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large. My favorite feature, though, is the built-in backup battery that comes in both sizes of the carry-on. It lets you charge cell phones, tablets, e-readers, or anything else that's powered by a USB cord. Away travel bags come with a lifetime warranty and a 100-day live trial. If at any point in the 100 days you decide it's not for you, Return it for a full refund, no questions asked. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com standard and use the promo code standard during checkout. Now, the Confab welcomes Steve Hayward, joining us by Skype from California. He's a senior resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of most recently of the book Patriotism is Not Enough. 
He's also been hanging out on the coast of California near Highway 1. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing just great. Well, you've written for the magazine this week a piece about Highway 1. I think if most people have any image, positive image of California, it may well be uh, whether they've gotten it person in person or just from movies or television, this notion of the coast road along California's coastline, driving along in a convertible as the sun sets off over the ocean. Oh, <laughs> perfection. Not quite this time of uh, this year, though. Yeah, well, this year is, uh, you know, one of the years when the precariousness of that road comes into play. Yeah, as many people know, uh, we had uh, record rainfall this year and a lot of high winds and, and some pretty big storms that came all at once. And so an area that's prone to landslides in normal conditions had uh, three very large outages, you might say. I mean, two very large landslides and one key bridge right at the south end of the little hamlet of Big Sur that washed out completely and is now has to be replaced. So the road has been cut for a long time in three places, although one of the slides was just reopened yesterday. Uh, or the middle of the week, uh, to regular traffic, but you can't get in from the north to the south. So it's now impossible for people to make that legendary drive along the coast that uh, most people have done when you talk to them about California. Or as you say, they have seen it in TV commercials. The, uh, the famous Bixby Bridge on the north end of the road is often shown with a truck or a car with a sunset in the background going over this wonderful concrete arch bridge that dates way back to the 1930s. Now, it isn't the Bixby Bridge that's washed out, though, is it? It's the Pfeiffer Bridge. Right, yeah. No, the Bixby Bridge is just fine. It's, it was retrofitted about 15, 20 years ago for earthquake risk, actually, uh, but they shored that up. No, it was the Pfeiffer Bridge at the bottom end of, uh, of the hamlet of Big Sur. Although you might think that in some way the, uh, the New Age hippie folks that have taken refuge in Big Sur over the years would welcome being cut off from the world and not having all the traffic on the road and letting all the tourists and uh, you know come and ruin the environment. You know, there's something to that, and uh, I, I follow I follow a couple of local blogs blogs where people talk about it. It is possible to get around the the bridge washout on a trail if you're willing to hike and and some people who live south of the bridge. There are a few residents who live south of the bridge have to hike in and out. Uh, to get their groceries and things. And there have been some complaints that, gosh, we just wish everybody would go away until this is fixed. And golly, it'd be nice if they never came back. So you're on to something there. So one of the things you talk about in the in the piece that I found to be interesting was the notion that this wonderful road could never be built today if 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 somebody proposed building it from scratch. Well, you can just imagine what the environmental impact statement would read like. Uh, it would point out that it's prone to landslides, so you would often be having to do major public works and earth-moving projects that would disrupt streams and you know redwood groves. Uh, the expense would be enormous if you engineered such a road today. Uh, and, and I just think it would be held Cause, up because um, you wouldn't have you know. the the prison labor to work for twenty six cents an hour. <laughs> right, that's right. It was built largely with convict labor in the nineteen twenties and thirties. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, the costs would be uh, astronomical. Uh, and uh, I just think it, you know, it would be if you if there were no road there today, and you proposed building such a highway, it would be held up in court for years, and that's just one of the challenges it would face. And how long is it going to be until the road is likely back in shape for those who listen to the confab who might be wanting to plan a trip up and down the coast of California? Uh, right. Well, they're saying that the Pfeiffer Bridge may be replaced as soon as September. That's just two, three months off from now. Um, I've talked to a couple of people who are skeptical about that, but uh, sometime this fall, they think. 
Now, the really huge Mud Creek slide, which didn't have to happen until November, uh, sorry, May 20th, which was late in the season, after the rains had stopped, which was a little odd. It shows you how waterlogged the hills had become. Uh, and it's but I so thought big. global warming was supposed to put California in permanent right. drought. That's right. That's And now the headlines are, gosh, California may, in, may be in for higher rain than usual for the next hundred years. But that's climate change for you. Uh, but the Mud Creek slide may be a year or more in being repaired. They can't say right now. It's still unstable. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that's going to be let's, let's see how it goes. But starting this fall, you will be able to get to most of the area from the north out of Monterey and Carmel. So if you have a convertible Volkswagen, an old convertible Volkswagen, <laughs> you do have time to get some renovations done to it, a little restoration before you hit the Highway <laughs> 1. That's right, yes. <laughs> Stephen Hayward, thank you so much for joining us on the Confab. Well, thank you, Eric. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.